Hey everybody, welcome to the Social Media and Politics Podcast, bringing you expert insights into how social media is changing the political game. I'm your host, Michael Bassetta, Assistant Professor of Communication and Media at Lund University. Remember, you can follow the show on Twitter at SMNP Podcast or visit us on the web at socialmediaandpolitics.org. All right, y'all. Thanks so much for tuning in. Now, this episode is going to be a bit different from previous episodes, and I know I say that almost every time, but this time for real, in the sense that there's not going to be a guest. It'll be just me talking about a recent publication that I co-wrote with my colleague Rasmus Schmuggel and published in Political Communication. So this will be a little bit of a Dan Carlin hardcore history style podcast, just not as long. So the study deals with how political candidates are represented in pictures across Facebook and Instagram in American political campaigns. Now, you might be thinking this guy is just going to ramble on about his research, which is part of the plan, but I also want to contextualize for non-academics what is the state of the art when it comes to studying visuals and pictures on social media, and also hopefully provide some tips for academic publishing that might be helpful for some of the graduate students or academics out there. So without further ado, let's hop right into it. The article is entitled Cross-Platform Emotions and Audience Engagement in Social Media Political Campaigning, Comparing Candidates' Facebook and Instagram Images in the 2020 U.S. Election. So before we get into the content, here's academic tip one. Stack your titles with as many SEO keywords as you can. What are people going to be searching in Google Scholar that will make your article discoverable? For those non-academics listening, We academics love to put witty and humorous titles to start off our essays. But the thing is, no one's going to be typing that into a Google search engine. So originally, this project was going to be using just solely computer vision to classify how candidates are portrayed in political ads. There was a great title for that. Oh, say, can you see? Blah, 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 blah. No one's searching for that. So tip one is to put as many keywords into your title as you can, make it as long as you can. For example, in this piece, why do I call it social media political campaigning? That doesn't really make sense, but it's good for search engine optimization. So just as an aside. So what the article is basically about is first trying to understand what is the level of content that campaigns are sharing across social media platforms, in this case, Facebook and Instagram. For non-academics listening, this is something we really don't know. To what extent is social media content that's posted on one platform recycled across another? Now, that may be surprising to some of the non-academics listening because it seems like a very simple question to answer, right? You just compare the content on one platform and see to what extent it's similar or different from that of another. The problem is, is that the data that we're getting from different platforms is not always apples to apples. And for example, it's very difficult to see whether there's a match between a Facebook post that has a picture with it and a tweet that also has the same picture with it because sometimes the campaigns will change the content of the tweet because there's only 280 characters on Twitter. So you can't just do a string match between is the text the same? And actually what I found through this research is that sometimes the text is the same, but the picture is different across platforms. So it's very hard to do this over hundreds or thousands of data points. So that's the first question. To what extent is content shared across the platforms? The second thing we wanted to find out is what are the emotions that can be detected in candidates' faces across these two platforms? Why? Because emotions is just a topic that is up and coming in the political communication research, specifically a focus on effective intelligence theory. This theory comes from political psychology, and it basically argues that there's two systems of emotional processing. You can think of the book Thinking Fast and Slow, which is basically a popular science version of many decades of research looking at dual neural process theories. And so effective intelligence theory is using insights from neuroscience to make specifically political hypotheses. And those are that there is one system that is fast and immediate. This controls fear and anxiety, which should depress mobilization, but increase citizens' likelihood to look for information. So mobilization goes down, information goes up. 
then there is a slower, more conscious route of processing. And that has the opposite effect, that when you're happy or angry, for instance, you should be more likely to be mobilized, but less likely to be open to new information. Now, to me, this sounds way too simple. And so I'm doing some research that's digging into this more uh, fundamentally. But if you keep your eye on the political communication literature, you're just going to see more and more of emotions research. Part of it, I think, is just an interest in emotions more generally across the social sciences. But I do think that Facebook's introduction of reactions and the emojis that citizens can react with to politicians' post have just lent to scholars thinking about emotions in politics, which is an interesting connection between platform design and academic research. So those are basically the first two research questions. How much is the content shared? What are the emotions detectable in pictures? And then the third question is, how do platform audiences respond to these emotions? You might think that politicians are more happy on Instagram and that's rewarded on Instagram, whereas there's differences both in what politicians communicate on Facebook and how audiences react on Facebook. So very simple set of research questions, cross-platform content, emotions, emotion reaction from citizens. But Theoretically, what we really try to do with this piece is think deeply about why do pictures matter. And so that's where I want to start this episode with. I'll return to each research question as we go along, but I think it's really important to think about why are we studying pictures? And for this, I really leaned on Ben Epstein's work. He was on the podcast before talking about the historical lens of political communication. Because most studies on Instagram or visual political communication, they basically just say, look, politicians are posting pictures. We need to study them. That's true. But why haven't images been studied before? This is a more interesting question, I think. And it's really interesting if you think about the historical trajectory of technology and politics in the sense that first, there were newspapers that were crucial for national identity, going back to Benedict Anderson's imagined communities. Then there was the radio, was the kind of next big revolution, followed by television, which is still probably the main medium for voter contact and advertising today. In that jump between radio and television, the technology of photography and the still image became viable in terms of commercial purposes, but it was never really utilized by political campaigns. Why? Because radio and television were controlled by the mainstream media, right? The broadcast era, the legacy press. So there was never an opportunity for campaigns to distribute pictures of their candidates at scale. Of course, they could put pictures on a pamphlet and hand them out at rallies. They could send them through direct mail. They could post them on websites or send them through email. But they always had to go through the media to really reach voters at scale. So in that sense, of course, there have been pictures of candidates around selected by the media, but not produced by campaigns themselves. This is something that has only happened recently through social media. So there's an interesting connection there where the still image, the picture, is older than television, but it's only now that campaigns are starting to produce pictures of candidates. And crucially, they don't need to do it through the mainstream press, right? They can distribute them on their own Facebook or Instagram channels. So there's actually an interesting historical element going on here where it's only in the past 10 years or so that campaigns have been able to reach voters with their own produced pictures at scale. And also there's an element that that's what users expect, right? Social media is built around sharing pictures. And so, of course, campaigns to fit with the social norms of communication on those platforms need to also produce pictures. So that, I think, is a crucial element to consider from a historical perspective, that it's really only now that pictures are being studied. So this brings me to two points I want to make on visual communication on social media. The first, thinking about this media argument, is that many of the studies of Instagram and social media lean on the categories developed by Grabe and Busey in their book, Image Bite Politics. And their central argument in that book is that campaigns and candidates try to frame themselves in certain ways. So it's like a visual framing theory. And they break down these frames into two broad categories. One is the ideal candidate frame. This is 
pictures of the candidate or clips of the candidate in a way that show them as very professional and conducting official business versus the populist campaigner frame. And this is more when campaigns are showing their candidate as you know relaxed, informal in terms of their dress, maybe taking pictures of food, right? So there's like official versus non-official business. And there's a number of subframes in each of these two overarching categories. And I have nothing against the book. It's a great book. I like Eric Busey a lot, so it's nothing about that. It's just that that book was all about how campaigns present their candidates in order to get television coverage. So you've probably heard of the sound bite, and they're making the argument that there's also an image bite. So their book is about how candidates appeal to the mainstream press. Going back to this historical argument, this has nothing to do with pictures that are produced by campaigns themselves. Of course, you can borrow the same categories, but it's not really an apples-to-apples apples comparison. So I think that's important to consider because if you read the book Image Byte Politics, they're breaking down things like how the candidates are vying for media attention to get that little 30-second clip during a debate that can then be shared on social media. When campaigns themselves are in control of the messaging and the distribution, I'm not sure whether those frames are the best way to go when it comes to studying social media and visual communication. Of course, there's an argument to be made that it is, but it's just that almost every study is using either the ideal versus the populist campaigner or the kind of variation of it, which is personal versus public versus private. And I mean, I think that that's a useful category, but I would like to see more arguments in the literature for why that's appropriate in the context of pictures when they are a new phenomenon that campaigns are producing. Is it really that we should be borrowing what's been studied in terms of television coverage and candidates trying to appeal to the mass press versus still images and when campaigns are in control of their messaging? Do we need different categories? So that's the first point. The second point is that there have been studies of images previously in political communication, of course. However, there's an interesting kind of terminological thing, which is most of the research in political communication that has looked at candidate images has nothing to do with pictures. It's about the image construction of the candidate. It's about branding and marketing and how they're trying to present their qualities and ethos. And of course, that makes sense if we think about the fact that there weren't really candidate pictures before 2010. So that's kind of the, both the explanation, but also a bit of a disconnect in that when you start reading about what have scholars looked at previously in terms of candidate images, it's not anything about pictures because the pictures weren't there if we think about the historical perspective. So that's a bit of the theoretical backdrop. I hope that y'all find that interesting and kind of thought provoking. Again, for those who are researching this or those who are just curious about what is the state of the art on visual communication. Now, the reason that this discussion is important is because now we understand why campaigns are for more or less the first time in history in control of producing a large number of pictures and disseminating them directly to voters. So the next question is, what might influence how those pictures take form and what's represented in them? So before I get to that, let's take a step back and talk about what's the research on cross-platform campaigning. There's been quite a bit of research the past couple of years making the argument that social media platforms are in fact different, right? They have different architectures, they have different norms of communication, they have different audiences that sometimes overlap. So highly resourced campaigns like American campaigns should have the wherewithal, the knowledge, and also the money to produce specific content for each platform, use data to optimize what works, and that sounds great. However, and some of the digital campaigners might uh, identify with this, is that even with lots of money, lots of resources, there's still structural constraints that make producing content for each platform difficult. And what we argue in the paper is that these structural constraints are going to push campaigns towards cross-posting content or what we call platform convergence. So the academic literature so far is slowly coming to realize that, hey, these platforms are different. There's going to be different content across them. That would be platform divergence, producing custom tailored content to each platform. What works on Instagram might not work on TikTok. The architectures of the platforms might not even support the same content, right? TikTok, as far as I know, doesn't support images. So in that sense, the architecture of the platform would necessitate platform divergence. 
But when it comes to campaign operation, there are these structural factors that are going to push campaigns towards convergence, or at least that's the argument we make. And we categorize these structural constraints into three broad groups. The first is candidate consistency. The second is campaign constraints. And the third is platform design. So let's go through each one. Candidate consistency is basically what I was talking about before in terms of how political communication scholars have studied the candidate image as their qualities, their brand, their ethos to establish legitimacy. So in a sense, it makes sense for campaigns to have a coherent brand of their candidate across platforms, right? It doesn't make much sense to be super professional on one platform and then be crowd surfing Andrew Yang style on another platform. I mean, maybe that works, but there's some element where campaigns don't want to be presenting their candidate as completely different across platforms. I mean, especially when it comes to policy, right? Campaigns tend to have a policy platform and they're going to produce that across platforms. So that's the first incentive to cross post, to kind of keep your candidate on brand. I mean, there's tons of research showing how important that is. The second set of factors are what we call campaign constraints. And we break these down into temporal, contextual, and organizational. And we argue that these are endogenous to political campaigns, meaning these are going to happen for every campaign and all the digital staffers needs to deal with this. So the first is temporal constraints, time pressure, right? Campaigns are just under time pressure. There's a voting date, it's coming down the pipe, and there's not so much you can do to move it. So there's that factor, but there's also this time pressure in the sense that digital staffers are hired to and are expected to produce content regularly over short intervals, right? A post a day or a post every couple of days, or maybe leading up to debates, multiple posts per day. So there is a pressure to produce regularly, which kind of interacts with the expected norms of the platform, right? We want to know where the candidate is as audiences. Candidates should be giving that to us, but there's people that need to create that content. And in the interest of time, there's an incentive for those people to share the same content across platforms or at least develop content that's shareable across platforms. Because let's say you're posting two times a day. If you have to multiply that by eight social media platforms, that's 16 unique pieces of content, right? So with each post, if everything is custom suited to a specific platform, it just exponentially increases the amount of content and there's just not enough time in the day for that. The second set of campaign constraints is contextual. So these are kind of the known unknowns that happen during a campaign. You know at some point there's going to be a negative press piece against you. Your opponent is going to attack you. You don't know with what they're going to attack you with, but you know something unexpected is going to come up. It may be a gaffe from your own candidate. In those scenarios, quickly getting out a message, rapid response, may take precedence over thinking about how do I create something that fits Snapchat versus Instagram, right? You just need to get out and apologize or counter that attack. And for that, it makes much more sense to have a coherent message go out rather than custom pieces of content for each platform. The third constraint when it comes to campaigns is organizational. So we know that campaigns have a hierarchy of approving posts, right? They have copywriters, they have designers, they have campaign managers, and there's kind of a process of getting a post approved. Sometimes the candidate is involved, sometimes their family is involved, sometimes they're not, but there's definitely a hierarchy. And in that sense, it's much more efficient from an organizational perspective to produce one thing that can be approved and shared across platforms rather than having multiple pieces of content in different stages of the approval pipeline. This can create inefficiencies, it can waste resources, and it could ultimately lead to a gaffe for the campaign. So to sum up, campaigns are under certain specific constraints that are going to be constant across cycles, and those are temporal, contextual, and organizational. The third structural constraint that facilitates cross-platform posting is platform design. I already mentioned this earlier. If the platform doesn't support the same content, obviously you're gonna have to produce different content. But if they do, and most platforms allow for some version of a picture, that's gonna incentivize cross-platform posting for all the reasons I just mentioned. So to sum up, there are incentives to cross-post because of keeping a consistent candidate brand, because of these organizational temporal and 
um, contextual factors for each campaign, and then also platform design. And I think that's been overlooked theoretically in the literature. Yes, platforms are different, but campaigns are under certain structures that incentivize them to cross-post. And like I said, we don't really know to what extent content is shared or different across platforms. We don't have that empirical research. So that's our first research question. To what extent do campaigns exhibit platform divergence versus platform convergence when posting candidate pictures to Facebook and Instagram? Right. So that's the first part on cross-platform posting. What about emotions? Well, one motivation is simply that there's an uptick in this research and we want to get ahead of it. And also, for the reasons I mentioned before, didn't want to do personalization, privatization, or candidate framing because I don't think those are actually congruous with the social media environment. We don't have theories built specifically to look at framing here. So we decided to run with emotions, and there are some interesting features going on here. The first thing I'll say is that we as political communication scholars and political scientists use the term emotions very, very loosely. I presented this and some other stuff to psychologists, and they are a vicious lot. <laughs> they will say that this, you cannot say this is an emotion. Um, and there is some, some great research that really uh, calls out how loosely uh, we use the term. But our interest is not so much in whether people are actually feeling an emotion in their brain. We're interested more in this presentation, the communication of emotions. And research does support the idea that multiple people can come together and agree on a picture that there is an emotion that's being communicated, not necessarily felt, but communicated. And of course, you can think of a candidate having a bad day and they're smiling. That's not indicating that they're happy inside their brain and their emotional sub-processing. But we're just interested in, are they showing happiness and why? So to kind of answer that, obviously, there's not really much incentive for campaigns to depict their candidates as having a bad day or super sad or angry, except <laughs> there might be in the sense that research as well as the Facebook papers tends to suggest that Meta's algorithms optimized for anger particularly on Facebook, right? So there is kind of a question of to what extent is that anger prevalent? But of course, we also know because of this historical argument that campaigns are in control of their messaging. They're not necessarily incentivized to show their candidates anything other than happiness. When the mainstream media is involved, when candidates need to get their message out through the media, they may communicate more anger and negativity because that appeals to the sensationalist media logic right? But when campaigns are in control of their messaging, we might not expect so much anger unless they're playing to the algorithm and trying to go viral. Maybe. So that's an open-ended question. In terms of looking at faces particularly, this is interesting because there is some research out there that shows that, and I mean, it's a little bit spurious, but scholars have taken, for example, candidates' facial features during political debates, specifically their rates of blinking, and correlated that with the volume of tweets about the debate and the candidate on Twitter. I don't exactly have the findings of that study, but there's a, some kind of correlation between eye blink rates and volume of tweets during debates. That's one thing. Uh, another is that there was a study that looked at um, speeches by President George W. Bush and found that when he made what are called micro expressions, so when he kind of briefly bared his teeth, participants responded to change in emotional state. So what this signals is that even very, very small changes in a candidate's face can influence voters' social media activity in the case of blinking rates, but also their emotional state. Again, it's a little bit, mm, I don't know, but even if these micro expressions and blinking have some relationship with user response, that's interesting to look at faces on top of the fact that most studies previously just tend to categorize posts as positive or negative or having emotions or not. We wanted to get into these discrete emotional categories. That's making a difference between happiness, anger, sadness, the kind of categories of emotions that really hasn't been done in the literature so far. Last thing I'll say about this is that especially for some of the social media marketers out there, there's kind of a general perception that happiness is a universal driver of post performance, right? And it makes sense. If you have a pair of shoes or some kind of brand, you don't want angry people next to it, right? You want to have positive people, happy, smiling to create a positive association with your brand. So 
Again, it may not be so surprising that politicians would show happiness, but we wanted to see to what extent were other emotions present as well. So that leads to our second research question. What emotions do candidates express through their facial configurations in Facebook and Instagram pictures? I'll note that psychologists say that you can't say emotion expression. You should say emotions inferred from facial configurations to be precise, but uh, we just use express because otherwise no one's going to read the paper. So for the third part, which is the audience response to emotions, I've been talking a little bit about the, um, the micro expressions, but we basically wanted to see, is there a difference in how audiences respond to these emotions, looking at correlations between emotion categories and how a post performs on a platform. So traditionally in these political communication literature on social media, what scholars will do is they'll just add all of the engagement metrics up, like likes, comments, shares, into one metric and then correlate that with some variable. The idea behind that is that posts with higher engagement should be picked up by the platform algorithms, giving that post higher exposure. So we wanted to understand how these emotions might relate to post performance, but we use a different variable than the engagement metrics. I'll talk about that when we come to methods. But let me just round out the theory and present the third research question, which is how do candidates' emotional expressions relate to post-performance across Facebook and Instagram? You'll notice that we don't make any expectations or any hypotheses in this study. And this is because we're using an exploratory research design. And this is something that I think is very important not just for this paper, but for the scholarly community more broadly around discussions of open science. And I don't know, I'm a nerd when it comes to research design and thinking about the scientific process, like going back to Aristotle and empirics and epistemology. But there is a fine distinction between exploratory and confirmatory research. And that is around hypothesis formulation. So when you do an exploratory research design, you're going in inductively and you're saying, I don't have any expectations, therefore you can't have any hypotheses. If you say you're doing an exploratory research design, you cannot have hypotheses. And there's plenty of research, go to OSF and check out some of their presentations and the literature on research design. There's a distinction. The hypotheses in an exploratory research design are actually what you produce. So you're expected in exploratory research to produce hypotheses that future confirmatory research can test. What is confirmatory research? That's when you have your expectations from the beginning based on theory. So if you have hypotheses, then you're doing confirmatory research and you've got to pre-register it. I'm at the point where I don't trust studies anymore if they don't pre-register their hypotheses. And that's because, and the academics listening know this, the non-academics might not. If you read a paper, it's like, wow, these guys, they, they knew exactly what they were doing. They had these hypotheses. They confirmed them. Great. Smart people. Yes, but there is so much formulating of hypotheses after you already know the results of your data. So it's more of a show than it is science. And this is not really helping build knowledge or getting us closer to any ground truth when it comes to social science phenomenon. So when you pre-register a study, what that means is you put a timestamp on your hypotheses before you even look at the data. So you're really drawing from theory, you're making expectations, you're saying, I'm going to put a timestamp on these expectations, and then I'm going to go collect my data and do my analysis. And this is extremely valuable if your hypotheses aren't proved. So in the kind of false science model, what you would do is you do your analysis, you'd say, oh, my hypotheses weren't right. Let me change them, and then everything looks great, and it will be more likely to go through peer review, which is unfortunate. But there's a movement now with this open science to say that, and I hope more journals require this, pre-register your hypotheses because then it really forces you to think about what those hypotheses are going to be, and you want to make them true. And if they don't, that's valuable because it shows that something is either wrong in the theory or it might be something with your analysis. So I just think that there's a lot of scholars that are doing exploratory research, but they're also formulating hypotheses. That's a violation of this research design principle. But when you do exploratory research, you should aim to produce hypotheses that future confirmatory research can then pre-register, test, and try to validate. 
And so we have a nice little discussion of that in the paper. Now, if you're doing exploratory research, you have to justify why. And we give three reasons for why we shouldn't expect any hypotheses. And remember, most journals are going to expect that you have them. So you have to have a really good argument for why you don't have them. Our argument is based on three factors. The first is that the American political campaign ecosystem is completely unique, right? This wild west of voter data acquisition and purchasing. That's not really applicable in European contexts or anywhere else, frankly. So we can't use European studies to build expectations around American studies because they're completely different, apples to oranges. The second thing we argue is that campaigns are so unique to each particular race, and we know that things like prior election results, challenger incumbent dynamics, and the competitive of the race itself is going to influence how much money is in that election, as well as how social media is used for voter contact. And I mean, this differs between federal, state, and local races. It differs across the country in different states. So again, it's hard to take one study of social media campaigning and apply it to a different race. Even if you're looking at presidential races, 2016 is not 2020, which is not 2024, right? So findings from one election might not apply to another. Actually, they probably don't. Then the third factor we look at is the fact that platforms change. So the Facebook of today is not the Facebook of yesterday due to the software practice of continuous deployment where platforms are changing their backends constantly and they change their front ends on a regular basis. Plus there's new platforms entirely. So can you use a Twitter study from 2012 to make an expectation about 2022? Perhaps. But because of these three reasons, the unique regulatory environment, the idiosyncrasies of each race, the specifics of each race's context, and changes in platform design, we argue that previous studies don't really hold to our case, or at least we have enough firepower to say that we're not going to rely on them because we're going to treat this as a completely unique case, which also means we don't expect our findings to hold in the future either. So we're looking at this context, we're going to study it, and we're going to do so in a completely exploratory fashion. So that's my piece on research design. I know that I get a bit worked up over it, but uh, I feel like this post hoc formulation of hypotheses is just kind of a sham in research and we really should do something about it. So what did we actually do in terms of methods? We collected all the social media posts from eight political campaigns on Facebook and Instagram from 2019 when candidates started announcing their presidential bids up until the end of April 2020, which is a couple of weeks after Super Tuesday, the big string of primary elections in the United States. I realize now I didn't justify this choice of Facebook and Instagram, and we got some flack for that in the reviews, which is these are similar platforms. They're owned by the same parent company. Why should you expect cross-posting to not happen there? And the reason is that we argue, again, from a research design perspective, that yes, both of these platforms support images. They're owned by the same parent company. This means that we have a most similar cases research design. This is a great way to test if things are actually different, meaning because Facebook and Instagram are so similar in terms of supporting images, if we find that there are big differences in how campaigns are posting across them, this would be strong evidence for platform divergence, that campaigns are posting specific content to different platforms even if the platforms are very similar. So we do need to test that because we don't have so much research on cross-platform campaigning. You can read more about it in the paper. But getting back to the methods, we took eight political campaigns, seven Democratic challengers and Trump, the Republican incumbent. And these seven Democratic challengers were the top polling from the Real Clear Politics polling average. And they were also the candidates that were present in the debate leading up to Super Tuesday. Joe Biden, Pete Buttigieg, Amy Klobuchar, you know the campaigns that we're talking about. So we pulled 15 months of their social media posts and we pulled out all the images uh, using some, some scrapers in Python. And there were about 8,000 images, but we were interested only in those that have the candidate in them because we wanted to look at these emotions. So we removed about 3,000 pictures that were things like merchandise, um, screenshots from Twitter, which already signals quite a bit of cross-posting, 
or pictures of factories and polar bears that would signal climate change, right? So the candidate had to be in the picture somewhere. It could be a large shot of a crowd. This was kind of Bernie Sanders thing where he's having a huge rally in New York. You can't even see him, but you know he's there because of the podium. We would keep those pictures in as well as really professional shots where the candidate is looking directly at the camera. So overall, we had about 5,000 pictures, which I thought was actually quite small for eight campaigns over um, 15 months. But so it goes. That's what we dealt with. So the next question was, how are we actually going to find the pictures that are duplicates across platforms? And I'm not going to go into all of this. It's spelled out very much in detail in the paper. But what we basically did is we used some convolutional neural networks, which essentially turn faces into dots. And then you can tell the computer, find the dots that are clustered in the same way. And what that did is it was kind of a computational step that identified some pictures that were the same, but definitely not all of them. So a lot of this research was uh, basically me with two folders open on my computer, a folder for Facebook and a folder for Instagram, and just trying to find were these images on both platforms and then putting them in a folder that was the duplicates folder. Um, took a very long time, <laughs> don't necessarily recommend it, but we could not have done that without the computational filtering step. So in a previous podcast, we we're talking about this human in the loop approach. We we're doing a little bit of that by filtering out those that were obviously duplicates that the computer could detect. And then we had to go and manually identify the rest of the duplicates. So this sounds pretty easy, right? You just find the matching pairs. It's like go fish. Uh, but there's a complication, which is a lot of the times campaigns would post the same picture, but they'd add different text on top of it. So they would do this when they were changing the name of the state. So they'd say, go vote Alabama, go vote New Hampshire. But the picture of the candidate was the same. Just the text of the state was different. Another variation would be the same candidate picture, but with a different call to action button. One would say, donate now or chip in, and the other one would say, take our survey. So we didn't count these as exact duplicates, but we did mark them as a cluster. And it's hard to get your head around, and you could read in the paper exactly the differences between these types. But again, remember I was telling you that cross-platform research is difficult? This is one reason why, because it's not just that you're finding pairs, you're finding pairs, but then also there's these massive clusters of the same image that just have small variations in the graphics. But we're not interested in that because we wanted to find out what were the emotions in the candidate's face. And because there were multiple variations of these pictures, it doesn't matter because it's the same face. And we could just classify one of them and then copy that classification across all the other ones. So basically, long story short, the result of this process is that we found for seven of the eight campaigns, all of the Democratic challengers, over half of the pictures of their candidates were posted across platforms. Meaning that if you randomly drew a picture of a candidate, there was a one in two chance that it would also be on the other platform. It's a pretty high level of cross-posting. The outlier, unsurprisingly, was Trump. Only 20% of his pictures were cross-platforms. Honestly, I can't tell you why. I've looked and tried to find a pattern, what was on Instagram, what was on Facebook. Nothing clearly emerges. My guess is that because he was the president, he had extra resources through his office that could create multiple pieces of content. He wasn't in campaigning mode over the entire 15 months that we studied. Okay, well, he was campaigning with his rallies, but um, he was doing presidential affairs and then also dipping into campaigning. So he's kind of an outlier in the structure of the campaign itself while the Democratic challengers were battling it out. What we then did, because we couldn't really see a clear pattern of what was he posting on Instagram versus Facebook, is just visualize the cross-posting activity over time. <laughs> That's all we could think of. So by doing that, what we found was that Trump's cross-posting activity increased sharply going up into Super Tuesday. So we can see this longitudinal pattern where the closer Super Tuesday got, the more likely Trump was to cross-post. We checked to see whether this was because Brad Parscale got fired and the new campaign manager came in. Maybe that was a shift in strategy to cross-posting. Didn't appear to be. But actually looking across all the campaigns, uh, for most of them, we see this little uptick ahead of Super Tuesday. Not for all of them, but for some of them. And what that suggests to us is exactly these structural constraints on the campaign that we talked about before. When the primary election gets closer, campaigns are under more time pressure 
and they have an incentive to cross-post mobilization messages to the largest audience possible, right? They don't have the time when the election's a week away to sit and think, you know, well, is this going to work on Twitter versus Facebook? No. I think the strategy is develop content that we can broadcast on all our platforms to try to mobilize the broadest audience possible, right? It's get out the vote time and it's time to leverage all the platform audiences at the same time rather than trying to think about, you know, what works here versus what works there. So overall, pretty high and stable levels of cross-posting when it comes to candidate pictures across Facebook and Instagram. Moving on to emotions. So as some of you may know, there are these computer vision tools that are being rolled out by Google, Amazon, among others, that claim to detect emotions in pictures. And we thought, let's give these a test and see how they perform. So because of all of our cross-platform matching and clustering the unique photos, we were able to classify each unique photo with computer vision. And with computer vision, you get a classification of the emotion and then a percentage of confidence that the algorithm is that that is the true emotion that is being conveyed. So for Amazon's recognition API, which is the one we used, it would say the candidate is happy at 95% confidence. Or if it was unsure, it would say the candidate is happy with 40% confidence. So the classifications go up to 100%. I've only seen a few 100%. Basically, 99 is the highest. So if there was an emotion classification with a confidence of 99%, that signals that the algorithm is very confident that that is the emotion that the candidate is expressing. So for scientific purposes, we need to validate whether this works. And anyone who's worked with computational methods knows that computers are dumb. They're going to classify anything you throw at them and give you the confidence. But you know, who knows whether humans will agree. So that was our first task. Will humans agree with what the algorithm says? So what we did is we started with the 99% confidence images. Where was the computer super confident that this was the emotion? Let's test a subset of those images against random people on the internet and see if they agree. So we designed a crowd coding task on Amazon's mTurk which is basically saying, hey, random people on the internet, what is the emotion that's expressed in this face? And they did not know what the algorithm had selected, but we gave them the same classifications as the algorithm. And these are things like happy, sad, angry, disgusted, fear. There's a set of eight categories. And what we found is that the crowd coders and the algorithm for these high confidence images unanimously agreed for happiness. So Humans and computers can both kind of align when the face is showing happiness, which is not that surprising, right? Because smiles are easy to detect computationally and with human judgment. The problem was that the human codes and the computer codes did not align at any you know, reliable level for any of the other emotions. So the computer vision sort of out the window. I had this lovely idea that everything would be automatically coded for us with the recognition API, and that would be it. But no. So what we decided to do then is to send all of the images to the crowd. And if two out of three people agreed on the emotion label, then we would keep it. If not, we would leave it as unclassifiable. And that's interesting, because what we ended up finding is that 13% of the images could not be classified by people. They did not agree. And when looking at those images, that tended to be when the candidate was speaking, which kind of makes sense, right? What emotion is it when the candidate is speaking? And just from my own experience, both computer algorithms and humans uh, have trouble identifying an emotion when the candidate is moving or in motion, particularly when their mouth is open, right? That just throws off the algorithm. So that brings up an interesting question, like does every image have a clear inferable emotion? I don't think so. So we kept those as unclassified. And the cool thing I think that we did is we left all of the high confidence, happy images in the crowd coding. And what that does, because we know that humans and computers agree on happiness, if we saw that these high confidence, happy images were getting classified as angry or sad, this might signal that the crowd coders were bots or they weren't paying attention or they didn't care about the task or whatever. 
But what we found was that there was 99% agreement between coders and the high confidence happy images. So even though those are the easiest to classify, it's still kind of nice to get that validation that we did have decent crowd coders who were aligning on the easy tasks. And again, if they disagreed, then we would put that in the unclassified category. So then what did the emotion classifications reveal? The most interesting is that there was virtually no variation between the emotions classified on Facebook and the emotions classified on Instagram. That's not so surprising if we think about, for most campaigns, over half of the candidate pictures were on both platforms, right? So they're coding a lot of the same stuff. But uh, what we also found was that happiness was the dominant emotion and calm was the second. So calm was just when there was kind of a neutral expression on the face. Um, not much else really to report. We found anger in Bernie Sanders, which kind of makes sense. That's kind of his shtick. Uh, but otherwise, we didn't find like tons of fear or surprise or disgust or any of these other classifications. So really, it was happiness and calm were the dominant emotions and very little variation across platforms. So that brings us to the third research question, which was about how do platform audiences respond to these emotions? And what's really nice about the lack of variation between the two platforms is that we're basically looking at the same thing in the sense that the categories across two platforms are virtually identical. So that's controlled. Any differences we observe are not attributable to different content across the platforms. They're attributable to different audience response. And that's quite important. So we ran a statistical model where we looked at how do different emotions perform relative to calm. This is very important. We did not look to see how do emotions affect a straight line to post performance. We looked to see variation within emotions. So taking calm as the baseline, to what extent do emotions perform better or worse relative to a neutral face? Why did we do that? Because our dependent variable, what we were trying to explain, is the post overperformance score that's provided by CrowdTangle. This was a huge issue in the review process. So CrowdTangle is a company that's been bought by Facebook and is rumored to be closing down soon, which is unfortunate for us because we used a variable that we can only get from them. And what it does is it gives each post a score from negative infinity to positive infinity on how a post performs. And that is an interesting metric because it uses some of Facebook's internal data about how is the post performing at one minute, five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes. So that's kind of a temporal nuance that just adding together likes, comments, and shares doesn't account for. Then what it does is it compares how the post is performing relative to the past 100 posts of the same post type, meaning it's only giving us a performance score relative to other images. So we're not conflating videos and text posts. We have just images. Then there's a third benefit of the overperforming score, which means it takes into account the candidate's audience size. And we know that certain candidates, let's think of Pete Buttigieg in the last election, their social media audiences may grow immensely because of their popularity or because they're running targeted ads to try to grow their social media audiences. And this is one major problem with a lot of the social media and political communication research is that audience sizes aren't accounted for. And this is really important when you're studying post-performance over time. So we have that kind of controlled for, not perfectly, but that's an added benefit of the CrowdTangle data, which again is using Meta's internal data to derive this overperforming score. And the last thing I think is really cool about this metric is it's specific to each platform. So it's calculated based on the performance on Facebook and the performance on Instagram. And that's important because prior studies, when they add engagement metrics together, the engagement metrics aren't really apples to apples across platforms, right? Instagram doesn't have a share feature and therefore not a share engagement metric. So when you're adding these up, there's a little bit of a disconnect between different platforms. And going back to the idea of different audiences, there may be 
one candidate who's super popular on Instagram and is getting super high engagement there, but doesn't really post on Facebook. So it's not exactly that great to add these engagement metrics up. Of course, I understand it's what we can deal with, but um, for that reason, we decided to use the overperforming score. Now, like I said, the reviewers did not appreciate this overperforming score because it's not something we can externally validate as academics. We can't get this internal data such as the temporal clocking and the audience sizes. So they asked us to provide an extra measure. And so what we did is we did add up the engagement metrics on each platform and we put those in the appendix. Our main results didn't change, but we learned a lot about comparing these engagement metrics across platforms. Namely that when we put Facebook and Instagram in a single OLS regression model, we found that Instagram seemed to be performing better on every emotion category. And that's just not what we saw qualitatively. And it's not what the overperforming score shows. But we could put Facebook and Instagram together in the same model with our overperforming score and got the same results as we did by splitting them. So that's a bit of a statistical discussion. And we talk all about normalizing distributions in the appendix. But if you're doing engagement metrics research, definitely check that out because I think that'll help you avoid some pitfalls in future research designs. But long story short, we think that the overperforming score is a better apples to apples comparison of platform post performance, especially if you're looking at one data type like images or videos. And regardless of how we sliced and diced the data, we got the same results for happiness, which is the most important finding here that relative to calm, this neutral facial baseline, we found that happiness underperforms calm posts on Facebook but overperforms on Instagram. So what? Of course, happiness overperforms on Instagram. That's not the interesting part. The interesting part is that it underperforms on Facebook. And this goes against a lot of that social media marketing literature, which would say that happiness is a universal driver of post-performance. This is also what the political psychology and effective intelligence theory would say, right? Happiness is this universal mobilizer. No, it's not. And the reason, we argue, is that different platform audiences, remember, we have a control-dependent variable with little variation between the two platforms. So our differences we observe for happiness are quite robust. And what this suggests to us is that older users who are using Facebook don't like their political leaders to show happiness. They prefer calm, which signals stability, control, strength, all that stuff. Think of Trump, serious face. Whereas on Instagram, younger users prefer their leaders to show happiness. We also found that anger underperformed relative to calm on both platforms, but the effect was weaker on Instagram, signaling that Instagram users punish anger less than on Facebook. And going back to effective intelligence theory, this goes against the idea that anger is this universally mobilizing emotion. We find that in fact on both platforms, posts showing anger perform worse relative to calm. And the last statistically significant variable that we find relates to post-performance is sadness, which performs well on Instagram, but not on Facebook. What is a politician being sad? That is showing compassion with supporters, that's visiting grave sites, looking down and being sort of memorializing. Um, we found that works on Instagram, but not Facebook. So one word of caution is that these are logistic regressions. This means that we are only testing the effect of emotions relative to calm. In the appendix, you'll find our OLS regressions, which are more predictive, and we do not find that emotions are great outright predictors of post-performance. This makes sense, right? There's all sorts of other factors that are going into whether people like posts or not. Could be their favorability towards the candidate, could be what's actually happening in the picture outside of the candidate's face. So really the value in our study, I wanna be very clear about this for the campaigners listening, it's not that we're showing emotions work here or not there. We're saying that within a choice of emotions, certain ones work better than others on one platform versus another. Namely, older people on Facebook seem to prefer non-happy, calm leaders, whereas users on Instagram prefer emotionally expressive leaders relative to calm. That's it. That's all we can say. Future research can dig into this and find out if it's really the age argument, right? We have no idea who these users are. We have no idea if some of this is because of post-boosting. So I hope that some people test this idea of different 
ages reacting to emotions differently in an experimental design. But I think for me, the most interesting thing of this study is that it is a signal that we're picking up through social media data that maybe different ages of the electorate have different values and what they prefer political leaders to be, right? That's a big question. Like, how do young people versus old people expect their representatives to behave or self-present or be as a person? Again, can't answer that here, but we think that this might be a signal for that. So I hope future research picks up and tries to test that hypothesis out, which going back to the idea of exploratory research and the idea that you should produce hypotheses rather than start from them, we produce three hypotheses that go along with our three findings. So to sum up everything here, the first thing we find is quite a bit of cross-posting candidate pictures across Facebook and Instagram. And looking at the trends that they seem to increase up to the election day suggests that campaigns will cross-post more when they are under time pressure as the election draws closer. That's hypothesis one, future research could test. The second finding was that emotion variation across platforms, virtually minimal. And keeping in mind that we looked only at images, our second hypothesis for future research is that social media content that's expensive to produce and approve like images and videos, are going to be more likely to be cross-platform than text-only posts or the redistribution of links from external sources, right? Because that's cheap to produce. But if you're taking time to develop a 30-second spot, it's probably going to be broadcast across all platforms that support it because it took a lot of resources to design and there were a lot of steps in approval. So we know that this research is only on images that deal with candidates, but that's probably a more expensive type of content in terms of the production value, but also the kind of risk in posting it. So it's likely to be cross-platform relative to just sharing a link that's already been created by Fox News, the New York Times, or whatever. And then finally, our third finding was that there was a difference in how audiences responded to these emotions across platforms, particularly when it comes to happiness relative to calm. And that leads to our third hypothesis, also looking at the other emotions. It just paints a general picture that Instagram users prefer their politicians to project emotionality, whereas Facebook users seem to prefer more calm, stable leaders. And so our third hypothesis is that emotions will differ depending on the platform, essentially based on the age demographic of that platform. And if we see this replicated, it may signal that different generations from boomers to Gen Z just might have different expectations on their political leaders, which has significant implications for democracy, in my view. So, geez, here we are at the one hour mark. I didn't expect for this to go so long. Um, but I'll just end with, if you're still here, you're probably interested in this. Um, what is the value of this cross-platform campaigning? Because sometimes I feel a bit silly presenting this to, let's say, political psychologists or political scientists that this doesn't really seem that valuable. I think it is valuable for political communication for the following reason, which is if we find that cross-platform campaigning is something that has been stable over time, and I can share that I have a kind of project that's dead in the pipeline, but I did look at cross-platform posting between Twitter and Facebook in the 2016 and 2020 general elections, and it's there as well. And there's a pretty good amount of it which signals that if this cross-platform posting has been going on for a while and it's a significant level of campaigning, then the studies that we have on Twitter, which are often criticized because it's just Twitter and it doesn't apply to other platforms as well. But if 50% of the content that's on Twitter is also on Facebook, which is what we find in some cases, then that study of Twitter becomes much more valuable because it's giving us a good chunk of the campaigning. So the Twitter bias that's been really kind of bringing this field down, I think, in terms of being generalizable, might actually be more generalizable than we think. So hopefully with Facebook's uh, Fort data and CrowdTangle, which may be closing, unfortunately, but we should be able in some way or another to get longitudinal data. And I really encourage scholars to look and see whether the content from campaigns across different contexts, particularly in Europe, is cross-platform, then we can really start to build a holistic knowledge of what are campaigns posting and why. And that brings me to my absolute last point, I promise, which is 
even if you're interested in platform differences and not cross-platform campaigning, then I think we do need to remove the cross-platform posts to really understand what's unique to each platform. Now, the problem with that is this detecting of cross-platform posts is really difficult. Um, Facebook's ad library can tell you when creative is produced over and over. So maybe in the future, we'll get a little metadata variable that says whether this was posted across Facebook and Instagram. But of course, that doesn't solve the problem of looking at Facebook and Instagram relative to Twitter, TikTok, Snapchat, etc. Well, I hope y'all enjoyed this deep dive into a study I've been working on for a couple years now. And all of the data with all of the pictures is open in our open science repository. You can find the link in the paper. So I'd also encourage everyone to open up your data. Uh, don't worry about the platforms coming after you. You're allowed to download individual pieces of content if you automate it, whatever, and post it. It's public information. I think we can start to really make some headways into what's happening with campaigning that we won't otherwise if we're not open with our expectations in terms of hypothesis formulation and open with our data as well. So that's it for me and a wrap for this episode of the Social Media and Politics Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. We've got the 2022 midterms coming up. I'm hoping to get an episode out before that, but if not, we'll do some post hoc analysis of the social media campaigning and how it went down. But until then, I'm your host, Michael Bassetta, signing off from Elba. See you next time.